Welcome to your path to success with Ruth kearns Volman. Today's episode is a gem. I just loved this conversation with Jane Hoskison, Director of Learning and Development for IATA, the International Air Transport Association. She's a wonderful example of someone who leads with authenticity and authority. She is genuinely warm and she is courageous in showing up to reality, both in herself and in her industry, to drive change for good. She says of herself, The red thread throughout my career seems to be working in traditionally male-dominated industries. I've worked in tobacco, oil, pharma, and now aviation. All of them have challenges around sustainability and diversity. And as a protagonist for both, I've always felt it is better to be on the inside driving change. And drive change she does. In this interview, we talk about her leadership journey as a female in male-dominated industries, about driving change in gender diversity and inclusion, and the impact of how we respond to the can'ts in our lives. Now, this interview was recorded back in January when we had no idea how hard the industry would be hit by the global COVID-19 pandemic. If we had known, we would have discussed it. And I know that Jane and her colleagues are working hard right now to support the industry in building back in a purposeful way. Enjoy the interview. So my guest today is Jane Hoskison, Director of Learning and Development at IATA, which is the International Air Transport Association. So Jane, thank you for agreeing to come on the podcast and share your leadership journey with us. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) So you've worked in various industries and disciplines during your career, but I know that you actually started out life wanting to be a pilot. I did indeed. And in fact, I wanted to be a Red Arrows pilot. (laughs) So I took my first journey on a plane when I was seven in uh, 1980. And uh, it was the time when you were still allowed to go in the cockpit. And I remember falling in love and thinking, I want to fly planes. And then that summer, I saw a Red Arrows display and thought, I want to fly those planes. (laughs) But of course, it didn't happen like that. I'm obviously not a Red Arrows pilot. And, <laughs> and some of that was, um, you know, I, when I was in my teenage years, I actually went and, and, and had a discussion about, you know, how to join the Air Force. And, um, and I was told, well, you know, I wasn't the right height and I wasn't the right weight. But actually, prior to that, um, you know, a lot of people had said, well, girls don't fly planes. And I found that really demotivating. So as a school kid, you know, being told that you can't fly a plane, why? Because I'm a girl? That doesn't really make sense. So it's super interesting to me that I'm now back in the industry that I originally wanted to join uh, all those years ago. Absolutely. Now, I mean, what impact, you talked a little bit about it, but I just want to unpack a little bit the impact that it had on you to be told girls don't fly planes and then to actually try and be told again, no, this can't work. You're not the right height, weight, gender, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, so it's strange, isn't it? You obviously are surrounded by boys and girls as you go through school. And of course, you that was in the 70s and, and 80s. And you, you're not aware that there's different careers for different people. But actually, there is a perception. There's always a perception about what roles are most suitable for girls and most suitable for boys. Now, we're now in 2020. I hope that's very, very different for kids growing up. But I think it does inhibit you a little bit. And you start to think, well, OK, maybe I should think about more feminine type careers. And perhaps that shaped me. I knew that I then didn't want to go into any 
very traditional careers so probably veered towards business because that seemed like a career that was accessible for both girls and boys yeah and I'm sure we're going to come back to this topic but it's interesting how these maybe I should do this crops up in our lives yeah I mean, of course, now, as you said, you've come back to the aviation industry. And how have you seen the industry change over the years? It's interesting. I've, I've been working at IOTA for the last six years. And I think the very first thing that struck me was the lack of conversation six years ago about diversity and inclusion. So prior to that, I'd been working at BP, which is a traditionally male-dominated industry. Yet one of the things that BP did really, really well was they talked a lot about diversity and inclusion. And I mean the whole gamut of diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. But they also had a very, very good focus on female leadership and female participation in a male-dominated industry. And so when I made that switch six years ago, I had a perception, and of course it's a biased perception, that actually the diversity and inclusion would be talked about a lot. And it wasn't. I didn't hear those conversations. I would say really in the last two or three years, the aviation industry has really kind of picked up the pace Mm. and said, we are really struggling with diversity and inclusion. And, um, and I think that's right, because the average number of female pilots across the world, data is a little bit sketchy, is about 5.6%. Wow. Which is shockingly low, because there's some data that suggests that there was 5.6% female pilots at the end of World War Two. Okay. So, so <laughs> actually, the stat hasn't really changed. Right. In all those years. And as you've come into this space, how have you been involved in the conversation and in changing the conversation? Yeah. Well, first of all, we started talking about our own diversity and inclusion. So that was one of the first initiatives that I led here was to build. First of all, we started talking about women leadership, but we really wanted to be broader than that. Mm -hmm. So creating our own internal approach. In IATA. In IATA. Mm -hmm. But in the last 18 months, that dynamic has changed completely. And we're now starting to play a role far more around the wider industry. So building a conversation around diversity and inclusion for the industry. So last year, we launched the Diversity and Inclusion Awards at the IOTA AGM to recognise an inspirational role model, a young high flyer, and then finally the Diversity and Inclusion Team of the Year. And the, the CEO who won from Air New Zealand basically challenged us and said, what are we actually doing to change those numbers? Yeah. You know, we can't be talking about this again. And I came up with this idea for, you know, we can't hit 50-50 in the next five years. But could we try and get to at least 25% by 2025? And as we started thinking about that, it made sense that perhaps we could get to 25% female representation in senior leadership roles across the industry. And maybe we couldn't get to 25% pilots, but could we take the current numbers and increase it by 25%? Okay. And so last year, at the end of last year, IATA launched the global initiative called 25 by 2025, which is a voluntary commitment from the airlines to, first of all, report on this data. There's not one place that it gets collectively reported. And then secondly set their benchmarks and say, in the next five years, this is what we're going to do. And so, you know, you said this wasn't a conversation that was really happening very much. How has this been received, this 25 by 2025? I have been absolutely overwhelmed by the response to it. So um, 
at the end of last year, we had had kind of over 50 airlines that had either signed up or said, we want to understand better in order that we can sign up. Mm. Um, that is not the number that I was expecting of airlines to sign up. And in last year in November, we had 29 airlines sign up in one day in Berlin. Mm-hmm. And this isn't the HR people. This is the CEOs of the right. airlines mm-hmm. who are saying this is really important to us. Now, one of my favorite stories about that is one of the airlines said, it's really important that we get the gender balance right, but we also recognize that men are underrepresented in the cabin. So if you think about your last journey, you probably heard a male voice in the cockpit and you probably saw more females in the cabin doing the safety demonstrations and serving you. And they said, well, we want to redress that balance the other way as well. We also, we are going to aim for these targets about more women as pilots. We're also going to try and be more inclusive and get more men into Mm. the cabin. And I think that's the most important thing about all of these initiatives is that it takes both genders to be diverse and inclusive. Absolutely. It can't go in one direction and it can't be about beating a drum and and kind of making men feel vulnerable or uncomfortable or that actually in some instances like they feel that career pathways have been closed off to them. That is absolutely not what should be happening. Mm. But we do want to recognize that actually it takes everyone to fix this problem of gender disparity in the industry Mm. so have you met resistance you know from from some people or like you said you know some men feel like you know parts have been closed off to them have you met resistance and how have you dealt with that yeah I think resistance is natural isn't it because what is this really about it's about change and we're all by nature a little bit change resistant it can be quite confronting when you think that you know the environment around you is changing I always think the best thing is to be as inclusive as possible in those dialogues and give space for people to air their feelings Mm. I think where we've met resistance then obviously it's about building a dialogue as to what is unpacking as you say it's a great word unpacking what's behind that resistance I think what really helps is when you've got great role models that say this is something that's really important on both genders so we are super fortunate our director general has been extremely supportive of doing this and he's also challenging as well. So, for example, we don't have enough women in senior leadership roles. Mm. We're at 19% and we obviously ourselves need to get to 25%. And he's, you know, challenged and said, we need you to a- apply for jobs. We need to look at, you know, how we are making jobs available and are they attractive? So he's challenging us from an HR point of view as well right. to make sure that we're not being um, too focused or not very basic things like writing job descriptions effectively so that they don't um, predispose people in one particular gender or another. Yeah, I, yeah, that's very interesting, isn't it? And I, I want to come back to your journey a little bit because I know that you've worked in, you know, mentioned BP, in, in other male-dominated <laughs> industries. You know, what have been some of your experiences as a woman <laughs> uh growing up as a leader if you like in a male dominated industry yeah really interesting my first experience was um working for a tobacco company actually was in switzerland 20 years ago i came on an assignment so i was a young graduate on an assignment here working on the outsourcing of an it department which was very popular 20 years 
ago to do and worked for um, came in and was outsourcing a Swiss guy that had worked for this company for a very very long time and he really took a dislike to me and basically said you're a young woman what do you know about anything mm. okay and it was it was awful because i was you know new country new job i was a i was a brand new graduate and of course he played to my worst fears that i didn't know what i was talking about and was i really capable of doing it and at the end of my year assignment he took me out for dinner and i remember going for dinner with him thinking what is he going to say and he said thank you for actually doing this job in a way more sensitive way than we would have done if we'd had a man leading it because you were caring about people's future jobs and it's a very emotional situation and it was a really great lesson for me that there are always perception barriers Mm. and you know 20 years ago I think there was even more perception barriers I I think there was a lot more kind of laddish behavior a lot more kind of inappropriate comments that you wouldn't hear today Mm. and the things that were you know kind of allowed to be got away with um you don't see so much of that today so i think of course society is evolving and Mm. the way and if getting more women into the workplace means that you know there's not those conversations that are going on Mm. Um, but that was that was a very tough at the beginning but Mm. gave me this absolute resilience Mm. and the sense that if you treat people on a human level you can always build a relationship with them yeah, I, well, and, and, and kudos to him for actually saying that. Yeah, he was a, in the end, he was a gentleman. I was very fond of him. Because I think, you know, when you're faced with situations like that, and I can identify with it, so I, you know, I feel the goosebumps, you, you sometimes feel like giving up, I think. Yeah. Um, and you feel like, what am I doing here? And I think that, as you you mentioned with things like, job descriptions that has put a lot of women off mm-hmm. so either you know am I going to fight through this the feeling mm-hmm. that I have to fight it or uh, how can I be true to myself yeah uh, in that environment where you know clearly I'm being my style um, is not fitting the expectation of the person literally sitting in front of me yeah you know as, as you grew in that environment what kind of things worked for you um i mean i always think that your success is always a function of you as a person the job that you're doing and the environment that you're in and and what i mean by that specifically is your your line manager has a massive influence Mm. so if i think back through the managers that i've worked for you can always take the good and the bad from those managers that you see around you but just the wider role models that you see around you and and sometimes you have to search for them Sometimes you really have to actively search for the role models. I mean, I I remember working in one part of an organization and it was completely at odds with my own values. So the the line manager, I remember having a really a stand up row with him about the fact that a recruiter that was we were trying to recruit quite a lot of people that wasn't available at midnight on a Friday. And I said, it's absolutely right that she's not available at midnight on a Friday to respond to your, you know, absolutely inappropriate email. Because first of all, it's midnight, it's Friday. She has a family and a life. And they're the kind of people that we want to work with. We don't want workaholics. And it was really, I mean, at that point, I knew that it was time to leave the team. Mm. Because, you know, it really conflicted with all of my own 
personal values mm. but taking a stand is not always easy it's it's difficult knowing that you're having a fight with your boss right and he's going to sit in the meeting and stew and you're probably going to end up kind of crying in the toilets because it didn't go exactly the way that you wanted. And, you know, and it's not perfect. And of course, you can look back and say, gosh, I wish it handled it a bit differently. But it's all part of that learning journey to, to, to learn to kind of stand up for what you think is right and important. Yeah. And that comes up in so, so many conversations I have about leadership. It's really about knowing your values so that you know when you when you need to stand up for that. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we, we can't fight every battle maybe, but you know you need to know which are the ones that this absolutely this is worth standing up for. Yeah, I, I really agree. And I don't know that we spend enough time thinking about who we are and what we stand for. Because if you think about, you know, education process, you're put through the education process in order to get exams and exam results, <laughs> and then go to university to pass your exams, to get a job out of university, you know, based on all of these criteria. But And, and even when we do interviews, we're always focusing on these experiences that you have. And we might talk about corporate values and ask interview questions about corporate values, but I don't know that we spend enough time thinking about us as individuals Mm. because there's still this sense of conforming all the time well right I mean I I think I I was I was smiling as you were talking because I was thinking yeah it's we we educate our children to conform or to to tick boxes to go through the sausage factory whichever way you want to talk about it yeah and then at some point in our lives we have to realize what, or, or ask ourselves the question, well, what do I really want? Am I doing this because I'm conforming to what I've told, been told I should yeah. or what I think my manager wants? Or am I standing up for what I think is actually going to change the industry, make a difference to the customer or whatever the common goal actually is? Yeah, and maybe that's one thing that I look at the the younger generations coming up and we hear it a lot when we talk about millennials and, you know, they, they're kind of more au fait with what it is that they believe in and the causes that they believe in. And I think that, you know, that's great and we should we should learn from that. Mm. But I think you've then got a generation of people that feel uncomfortable a little bit. There's still a formality associated with work about where where do you bring your full self into work and which bits stay hidden mm. for a whole host of reasons. Yeah. Um, well, maybe we can use that as a bridge to come back to something I want to talk to you about. I want to come back to this kind of um, question of the things that we're told we can't do. So yes. who we are uh, is sometimes shaped by other people, what other people have said. So so people said to you, well, girls don't fly, girls can't fly. Yeah. Um, and that triggered a whole journey for you in a way which uh, has come full circle um those are sometimes things that that make us feel vulnerable what what have you done with some of those kind of can'ts in your life yeah yeah there's a there's a can't that I'll tell you just very quickly which is um or it's not a can't but they won't you know so I remember my German teacher saying to me you will never speak German fluently and (laughs) You know, and maybe this How is... helpful. Yeah. This is... I remember sitting in my A-level class. There was three of us in the A-level class. And the other two were just gifted linguists. And I was clumsy. I couldn't remember. But I knew that I wanted to speak a, a European language. I felt very European and kind of an affinity to that. Um, she said, 
you know, you'll, you won't ever speak German fluently. So, of course, I made it my aim to then go and do my degree in German, lived in German, mm. lived in Germany. Um, you know, and I, I suppose it's kind of sometimes a can't or a, a won't gives you this kind of steely I'm going to show you. <laughs> yeah. I am going to do this. And there's a good side to that, isn't there? But there's also a little bit of a, 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 a striving side to that. There's a bit of kind of... Yeah, have a tense. You, I mean, people can't see this, but I'm kind of tensing up now. Kind of a tense energy about it, a striving energy about I it. I think you're right. And flipping heck, it was hard work. I mean, I'm not a gifted linguist at all, and some people can hear it musically. I really struggle. Um, it was really hard work to get fluent in German, um, and you know, I, but I don't regret it because it opened up yeah. so many opportunities yeah. for me to see a different world and see the world through a very different lens. And I, so I'm, you know, sometimes you have to be eternally grateful for the people who tell you that you can't do things mm. because. They push you in one direction, even if they didn't mean to. I don't think she thought I would ever go and study German. But she opened up a whole new world to me. Mm. So for me, there was a massive silver lining to Mm. that particular, um, you know, can't, won't. Um, There's one that's been a little bit harder. There's There's a can't that for me that's been a lot harder. And that is the you can't have children. Mm. And that's been something that I think throughout my career and my personal life is, you know, I sometimes very hard to deal with, mm. um, causes quite a lot of hurt, I would say. Um, and that that's shaped me as well. Mm. I think the can'ts always shape you. Mm. You talk about hurt. Um, what? And it's obviously a very sensitive topic. So yeah. I'm sort of, so I'm pausing a bit. Um, how have you dealt with that and 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 reframed that for yourself into something that's i don't want to say less painful but but brings fruit mm-hmm. like you said you know it's a very different case but the german teacher says I, I you will never speak german you go out to prove it i think this was slightly different i mean i know you're a little bit so yeah how is it for you to to deal with that yeah I mean I think like everybody you go through a process don't you you know and I mean even now I still sometimes have glimmers of hope and think maybe maybe I can have children maybe this is maybe this really is me having a child and of course you know you you never want to lose sight of that hope for that particular can't I think of course I went through a period of denial and putting those emotions into a box and and thinking well they don't have a place in my life therefore perhaps they don't have a place in the workplace but actually they do and once I'd started to be more honest about the fact that I couldn't have children you know or that that it would be very hard for me to have children it started to shape my perception on well but that's a really important thing for so many people. And how do we really support it in the workplace? And are we doing everything that we can to support families in the workplace, both the women that are going to have the children, but also from a paternity leave point of view, do we have... So I started to kind of look a little bit more holistically and perhaps with a little bit more objectivity. Um, 
because if you're running if you're looking at policy and you are you know you're a parent and you know there's a sense that well are you kind of self-interested in what this policy is okay. mm-hmm. whereas I think that gives me a little bit of a different objectivity so I mean very silly example but I um last year I said to my team I set them an objective a, a soft objective I want you one day a week to leave work early to be with your families and um okay do you know how hard it was for my team to do that? But that's incredible. <laughs> like, really? I love that objective. Yeah, I, because I kind of think, your kids, when I look at how it works often, mm. they've been in school all day. Mm. They've often been at after-school clubs. They're often tired. And from what I see from my kind of colleagues on my team is, the routine is you pick them up, you get dinner, you get them a bath, and you put them to bed. Yeah. Maybe you read them a story. I don't know what you do, but it's a very short window of time. Mm. And you're not in your best. They're not in the best. So couldn't you leave work just an hour early mm. and do something in the moment with your children? Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that's why I, I wanted that to be a, an objective just for my team. But there's still so many perceptions that we were talking about it the other day. They found it a little bit hard because they were conscious of, well, won't other people look at us if we leave early? Which is kind of crazy, right? But it's, you know, I hear that a lot with people who don't have kids. I, when I worked in the corporate world, I didn't have kids. And I hear it, you know, today from people who don't have kids who say, oh, well, my, my friends or my colleagues who have kids, it's okay for them to leave, but it's not okay for me to leave. Um, and so I think it works the other way as well, doesn't it? And I, and I know that for you... Um, the fact that you don't have kids doesn't mean you don't have a life, for example. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> or that you don't want to have kids in your life. So how has that also shaped you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the big kind of breakthrough for me was, you know, making that realisation that it wouldn't happen and then thinking to myself, well, what do I want for my life? And I always then said, well, I want a life less ordinary. So that's how okay. I want to yeah. kind of live my life because it, it won't be the traditional way of living. Um, but kids are really important to me. So I'm really lucky. I have quite a lot of godchildren who mean the world to me. Mm. But I also have, like, from my friends, a lot of kids um, in my life. And so one of the things that I've done over recent years as they're starting to get older is kind of made them the offer of coming to work in the office with us for a week. But, you know, giving them a week away from their parents too. So it's always really fun because, you know, you know they come and you see a different side to them they get to see a work experience but actually I always feel like I give them a one-week internship and they give me a much harder one-week internship (laughs) I'm always exhausted when they leave and kind of slightly great then slightly grateful that I don't have kids because I think goodness it must be extremely tiring all the time yeah I think it's just different and and as a parent now I also think it's so important for children to have other adults in their lives who are not their parents Agreed. but who the parents trust they know that the that their kid has someone to talk to someone to discuss things with who has different experiences but who's not them so thank yeah. you <laughs> on behalf of all the parents out there who do that right. <laughs> um we touched on this kind of a little bit on emotions, on um, on dealing with our own hurt and how, um, 
you know, sometimes if if, if our hurt isn't dealt with, yeah. that that can be something that has repercussions in the workplace, doesn't it? If, if leaders haven't dealt with their hurt, and I know uh, you're also a fan of Brene Brown, and she talks about leading from heart, not from hurt. Yeah. Um, what's your experience of helping leaders to um, be okay with emotion and to um, and to heal actually? what they need to heal yeah I mean I love Brené Brown she's fabulous she's so inspirational you know that that sense of vulnerability Mm. I think that um one thing that I really do appreciate now is that it's okay to be more vulnerable and that as a leader you should be you you can you can share the whole gamut of emotions Mm. and I think that one thing that there's again old-fashioned perceptions are that women are more emotional than men Mm. you know and and i think that there's still this sense of kind of men should hold it together and yet some of the best leaders i know that best male leaders are very very in touch with their own sensitivities and their own vulnerabilities and are not afraid to share that and i think as i think it's my duty as a leader to share emotional vulnerability in a constructive way, of right. course, mm. and not let people think, you know, you've got it all under control. Because I promise you there are times where I, you know, am making a hasty dash to the toilets to just kind of either do a little scream or have a little cry sometimes if you, you know, if something's really got to you. Mm. And it's important that we process that emotion in a, in a healthy way. Mm. And I think if you're suppressing those emotions, mm. it comes up in quirky leadership styles. Right. Um, and that's not okay. So I, I think it's my job to role model, of course, but it's also important to provide a safe space for people who do feel vulnerable. And so we do some work... Um, In fact, last year in Mental Health Day, we did some open sessions Mm. to talk about some of the challenges that we face. And and what really struck me was life is quirky and it's never the Instagram life that we all have. So, you know, I think the thing I like about Brené is she's not like some of the other kind of um, celebrity um, leaders who present this very perfect life where they get up at five in the morning and they do their workout and then they check their email and then they do their to-do list and then they, you know, eat their healthy smoothie. You know, I think that's very fake and it's quite dangerous because we provide these role models. Well, it's another should, isn't it, as well? You're absolutely right. It's it's another kind of hoop to jump through and it's, it's not authentic. Yeah, and life is life is messy it's kind of it can be spiky it's often it's full of joy and that's the other thing that I think we we often forget in the workplace we get a bit serious we do we do get a bit serious and I would uh I think a day without laughing is you know the worst thing I can imagine you know Mm -hmm. we always make sure we create a, Mm. a fairly convivial atmosphere that has got both ends of the spectrum of emotion in so as we draw to a close, I, I want to ask you a little bit. I mean, you, you, your role is in learning and development. Yeah. How do you can keep yourself growing as a leader yeah. personally? I mean, so I think, you, first of all, you have to have like kind of a, a curiosity about lots of things. So, you know, I'm one of those people that's got too many books by the side of my bed mm-hmm. and actually books all around the house that I'm always 
reading bits from. I, I'm a, a avid pod- podcast listener, but I, I think about um, a kind of a role model that I had when I was quite young. So my one, one of my cousin's grandmother, she was a milliner and had a hat shop. And she would always ask me, she was quite elderly when she was running this hat shop. I guess she was in her 70s when I was just in my teenage years. And she'd always be asking me about, uh, you know, music I was listening to or clothes that I was wearing or what was going on. And, and it made me laugh because she would watch Top of the Pops. And and I was like, well, aren't you too old to watch Top of the Pops, you know, mm, as a kid? Mm. And she said, well, no, because then I really want to know what's going on, you know, for kids. I want to see what's going on, the what's charts. fashion, like what's trendy. The latest music. The latest music. And I kind of think that's where we have to be a little bit. And that's why coming back to having kids in my life in a different way, I love hanging out with kids because they see things in different ways, they say things in different ways, they're interested in different stuff and they are the next generation. So Mm. I think it's one way of keeping very, very current with what's going on and and the way in which kind of actually leadership is evolving. Mm. And that's the way I think, one of the ways that I keep learning about what's going on and what's changing and what's coming and what what matters to the next generation Mm. of people because it needs to matter to me too Mm. yeah what would you like to see uh, develop for the next generation yeah I I mean I have I think like everyone I have high hopes in many ways for the next generation in that I think they are far more passionate about some things I heard this great analogy once that I think is it um the millennials are like Harry Potter and the next generation after them are like the Hunger Games. So I have kind of a fear (laughs) for them too that actually we're a little bit kind of left alone and I think that's quite scary. So, you know, I, I... I do see the the great high hopes. You know, I think they're talking about all the issues that are really important. Um, but I also hope that we continually learn and evolve and develop and that actually we break down barriers so that that aren't people in another 20 years' time still having conversations about how to make diversity and inclusion real, mm. how to make, you know, authenticity in the workplace real. Mm. I think that it will be more natural to the next generation mm. of leaders coming. Mm. And that's quite exciting I think well I'm excited too and I think it starts by having conversations with them as you said so um, here's to having lots of conversations with people from lots of different backgrounds cultures and um, all the best for the future thank you so much thank Thank you you. there are so many things to love about this interview but the one I want to highlight is the power of creating a safe space for courageous and vulnerable conversations But as leaders, we cannot lead where we're not willing to go ourselves. If we're not able to process our own emotion, we cannot create space for other people. And yet so often leaders don't feel they have safe spaces to process emotions or they haven't learned how to process emotions. Brene Brown says, vulnerability is the birthplace of courage. And for me, Jane is a living example of this. Once she had allowed herself space to show up to and process a painful can't in her life, it allowed her to lead courageously from heart and not hurt. Sharing emotional vulnerability in a constructive way is powerful, but it isn't a given. It isn't easy, but it can be learned. And I know because I've had to walk that path myself, 
I have been a leader who's suppressed emotion. I've been a leader who's shared emotion in unconstructive ways, unfortunately. And that's why I've also become a leader that has learned to show up to my own hurt and emotion so that I can lead from heart. It's also one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about giving space to leaders to process emotion and hurt in the context of my coaching practice. So if this has struck a chord with you and you'd like to discuss it and maybe even the possibility of coaching, do get in touch via my website, yourpathtosuccess.ch. I'm also running a couple of free online workshops on the 8th and 9th of December. They are wholehearted year-end review workshops. 2020 has been a tough year and in this workshop I'll be creating space for us to show up to where we are right now with respect to what's been in 2020 so that we can make purposeful choices about how to move forward in 2021. I'd love you to join and you can sign up on my website yourpathtosuccess.ch forward slash events. That's all for now so until next time keep showing up purposefully, authentically, and courageously.